0: Welcome everyone. Welcome to Christ the King. I appreciate having you with us tonight for Father Vince's talk. Um, Yeah, just just an absolute gift. I'm going to start in prayer and then introduce Father Vince and then let you hear uh, the one who you came to listen to. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Lord we pray as always that you would make our minds our hearts and our souls fertile soil that your word may bear great fruit in our life we pray thanksgiving for father Vince and his priesthood and his ministry as an exorcist we ask your anointing upon him and us tonight that we would receive exactly what you desire to be more deeply committed to Jesus Christ and to surrender our lives completely to him, becoming the saints you have created us to be, bearing forth great fruit for the salvation of souls and the building up of the kingdom. We ask the intercession of Saint Joseph, as well as the Immaculate Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, Amen. So again, it is my honor to uh, introduce Father Vincent Lampert. Uh, goes by Father Vince here to, to Christ the King. Uh, he is a 1985 graduate of St. Minor College and a 91 graduate of University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein. He was ordained a priest for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis on June 1st, 1991. He currently serves as pastor of St. Michael and St. Peter parishes in Brookville, Indiana. In 2005, he was appointed the exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. He received his training in Rome and is a member of the International Association of Exorcists. He is also the author of the book, Exorcism The Battle Against Satan and His Demons, by Emmaus Road Publishing. You may have uh, seen some of Father Vince's talks on YouTube, and again, just grateful to have him here to speak to us about this particular topic because he speaks with a level of sobriety while he speaks very forthrightly about it, but not in a sensationalized way. And it's been a gift the last 24 hours to get to meet Father Vince and to spend some time with him and genuinely been edified by the humility uh, of, of, of this man. So it is an honor to, to welcome you to come to speak to Christ the King.
1: Good evening everyone. It is a pleasure to be with you. My goal this evening is to give you all a glimpse into the world of the Ministry of Exorcism And at the end, there will be an opportunity for folks to ask questions if you would like to do so. So let's begin, and hopefully this will be a time of fun, a time of enjoyment, and a time to grow deeper in our faith. Because ultimately, when we come to realize that when our faith is strong, the devil is nothing to fear. So imagine, if you will, that it's Sunday morning in every major city and small town across the United States, and there's a sound that begins to echo in the air, and the sound that we hear is the ringing of church bells, meant to remind all of us that we are called to wake up with the church and to be about the things of God. But it is a sad reality that far too many people today seem to be spiritually asleep. Many people who have been baptized have abandoned their faith and have lost the sense of the sacred in their lives. Recent studies even suggest that the majority of Catholics, 79% between the ages of 18 and 35, no longer practice their faith. They now doubt the existence of God and even claim perhaps to be an atheist. What is alarming about the majority of these people is that they have grown up in a traditional Christian home They may say they're spiritual, but they no longer need to go to church. And at a time when people are losing touch with their Christian heritage, there is a great risk for falling for ideas that sound appealing, but can be extremely dangerous and misleading. Saint Paul warns in 2 Corinthians, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, and he deceives many people. And there are many people today being deceived by the devil. All of us need to realize that the presence of the devil is sharpened as humanity and society are distancing ourselves away from God. And as the gap is growing between ourselves and God, there has been a resurgence in the practice of magic and other things that center on the occult. These things are viewed as attractive, whereas belief in God is viewed as unattractive. The danger that we are facing is that when a person no longer believes in God, they will believe in just about everything. And as a result, they could be opening themselves up to the forces of evil. All of us need to realize that our ultimate identity comes from our relationship with God and not apart from Him. Let's all remember that faith in God will lead us in one direction and the lack of faith will lead us in another The good news is that in spite of the growing trend for people to move away from God, God never moves away from us. Consider for a moment these following biblical accounts. In the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God calls out, Adam, where are you? We come to know of a God who is always looking for us whenever we sin and go astray. Later on in Genesis, we hear the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel and we discover a God who will always fight for us. And why would God fight for us? Because we are his children and God loves us unconditionally. Oftentimes when people sin, they believe that that is the greatest thing that they can know. And yet God's love and mercy is greater than any sin we can commit if we are willing to repent and turn back to God. When we turn back to God, God is always there to welcome us. As Father Andrew mentioned, I was appointed to be the Archdiocese or the exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis back in 2005. People ask me, how did you get the job? And I jokingly say I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) So the Archdiocese of Indianapolis has always had a stably appointed exorcist. 2005, our exorcist passed away. Ironically, he was the parish priest where I attended grade school. Never dreamed that one day I was gonna inherit his job. And I was at a meeting with the archbishop. I was running late. Never be late for a meeting with the bishop is what I've learned. (laughs) And I was coming into the room. The bishop looked at me and said, I'm appointing you to be the exorcist for the archdiocese. Now let's go to our meeting. I couldn't tell you what the meeting was after that appointment. When I was appointed, I became one of only 12 stably appointed exorcists in the United States. Indianapolis has always maintained a priest in this position. Even when after the Second Vatican Council, many dioceses let the practice kind of die out, Indianapolis has always had a priest assigned to this role. The good news is that there are now more than 125 stably appointed exorcists in the United States. In 2006, I had the opportunity to live in Rome for three months and to mentor under a Franciscan priest to learn firsthand the ministry of those who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. During my three months in Rome, I was able to participate in 40 exorcisms that Father Carmine de Philippus uh, performed. I'm also a member of the International Association of Exorcists. It's a group of 750 priests and their helpers from throughout the world who gather in Rome every other year as an opportunity for ongoing training, formation, and as a way to create collegiality with one another. I've also attended the Vatican course on exorcism. Currently, I receive about 2,000 phone calls and emails every year from people all over the United States and from other countries who believe they were up against the forces of evil and who are seeking the help of the church. Now, what I hope to impart in my talk this evening is not to create some type of fascination with the devil or the practice of exorcism. What is needed, especially for young people today, is to have a renewed fascination with God and to see God's presence around us rather than focusing on what the devil is trying to do. It's once again time for all of us to focus on the positive aspects of our Catholic faith. As John the Apostle has said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now many people today live with a distorted view of freedom that echoes the fall of humanity mentioned in the book of Genesis. The guiding principles of this distorted view of freedom are this. You may do whatever you wish. No one has the right to command you, and you are the God of yourself. This viewpoint leaves no room for God, and the end result is a greater presence of evil, both in society and in the lives of individuals. Now why would people turn their back on God? And the answer is clear, because God is seen as a threat to what we believe freedom truly means. It was Saint John Paul II who said that freedom in the true sense of the word means to be obedient to God. Freedom and obedience go hand in hand. When we start to believe that freedom means we can do whatever we want, that we can write the rules, then John Paul goes on to say, we end up becoming slaves to our own passions and desires. Pope Benedict put it this way, when the existence of God is denied, freedom is not enhanced, but is deprived of its basis and thus becomes distorted. Whenever I give a talk on the topic of exorcism, I like to define what is meant by the term. Many people today may have some idea of what the word means based on their own research or a definition that has been shaped by modern culture. Anybody who ever seen the movie The Exorcist? The Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Right? Do you like to watch programs about paranormal activity or ghost hunting? If you want to know something, where's the number one place people go today? You go to the Internet. I always like to remind people that just because you read something on the Internet doesn't make it true. Can you believe that perhaps people might put misinformation there? And especially when it comes to the topic of exorcism, much of what you might find on the Internet has to do with creating a fascination with the devil rather than helping to guide and direct people to God and a deeper relationship with him. So the word itself comes from the Greek word exorcismos, and it's a term that signifies an insistent request manifested before God or directed against demons. To exorcise literally means to bind with an oath. At its very core, an exorcism is a prayer, It's a prayer that brings healing and peace to those who are afflicted by the evil one, allowing them to be reconciled to God. It's a ministry of compassion. It's a ministry of charity. It's a ministry that must be done well. It's not a hobby, and it's not a game. When God is being asked to expel a demon, we call that a supplicating or minor exorcism prayers for deliverance would fall under this category. When the demon or some evil spirit is being addressed, we call that an imperative or a major exorcism. Catholic belief holds that anyone can say a supplicating exorcism prayer on behalf of someone else. Again, it's a prayer directed to God, and we know that anyone can pray on behalf of someone else. However, an imperative exorcism as an official right of the Catholic Church is reserved to the priest who has been authorized to perform this ministry by his bishop. Every bishop is the exorcist in his diocese. He has that title, if you will, based on his episcopal ordination. And then the canon law of the church says that at the bishop's discretion, he may bestow this terrorism on one or more of his priests. He can appoint a priest on a stable basis, meaning he's the go-to priest in the diocese to address all cases of possible demonic possession, or he may appoint any priest on an individual basis to perform the rite of exorcism. Now, the role of the exorcist is to investigate alleged cases of demonic activity and to make the determination if the official rite of the church needs to be called into play. The official rite is this little red book. This was the very last liturgical rite to be updated after the Second Vatican Council. The council ended in 1965. The new rite of exorcism came out in 1998. It replaced the older version that dated back to the year 1614, So from 1614 until 1998, the rite virtually remained unchanged. It was uh, released to the public in 1999, tweaked again in 2004 and 2005. In 2016, the English translation was approved and released in 2017. You see how the church moves very slowly and methodically But again, the purpose of the new rite was to include supplicating exorcism prayers. Again, prayers directed to God, who is asked to bring relief in the life of the person who is suffering. Ironically, when I was appointed the exorcist, I tried to find this book, was told that it did not exist. My archbishop had to get a copy from the Bishop's Conference in Washington, D.C. I got that in December of 2005. When I arrived in Rome in February of 2006, I went into the bookstore right off of St. Peter's Square. The books were stacked from floor to ceiling. (laughs) Anyone could have one if they were willing to pay 13 euros. I went back to Rome in 2016 for the international gathering, and I was looking for an additional copy, and they had them at the Benedict XVI bookstore, but they were now selling for 35 euros a copy, so... I guess inflation has hit even the ministry of exorcism. Now, many people today who believe that they need to see an exorcist can have the majority of their problems resolved by going to see their parish priest. He should be the first contact using discernment to listen to the person, to assess where they are spiritually, to pray with them, to offer a blessing, to hear their confession, to perhaps give them the anointing of the sick, and if need be, to contact the diocesan exorcist. You know, I can only function in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. I'm not appointed to be an exorcist for the universal church, because again, I work under the discretion of my local bishop. For me to function outside of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, then I need permission of the bishop in whose diocese I'm being asked to come into. But again, it should always be the parish priest. If you're feeling sick and you have a headache, you're not immediately going to call a neurologist and say, I need to schedule brain surgery as soon as possible. No, you're gonna go see your family doctor who's gonna evaluate you, and then perhaps your doctor is the one who will refer you to the specialist, and it should be the same way in the world of exorcism. And exorcisms should always be seen in the broader scope of overall pastoral care and that is always best done at the parish level. Demonic activity is classified under two main categories. It can be extraordinary or ordinary. When it comes to extraordinary demonic activity, the Church recognizes four different types. There can be demonic infestation, demonic vexation demonic obsession and demonic possession. Demonic infestation has to do with the presence of evil in a location or associated with an object, something like a voodoo doll, perhaps, something that was created solely for the purpose of connecting one with the power of evil. Demonic vexation would be the action by the devil and his demons aimed at attacking a person physically. When someone is experiencing demonic vexation, they might have cuts or marks or bruises or bites on their body as a result of a demonic attack. Demonic obsession would be the action by the devil and his demons aimed at attacking a person mentally. Literally, the devil is trying to get inside of someone's head, and every thought that they have is processed through the presence of evil. And then there is demonic possession, whereby the devil or one of his demons will take control of the person's body, treating that body as if it were its own, using the person's eyes to see, their mouth to speak, their arms and hands to give gestures, their legs and their feet to move. Whenever a demon manifests in someone who is possessed, all the actions are now wholly defined by the demon and not by the person. Some people who are possessed will have a total awareness of what is taking place. They have told me that's like they're a prisoner in their body, but they can't stop what the demon is doing in controlling their body. Other people have told me that once the demon manifests, they no longer have any recollection of what transpires after that. So infestation, vexation, obsession, and possession. There is something known as demonic oppression, but demonic oppression is a gift from God. Can you imagine that? God allows someone to be attacked by a demon as a particular grace. It may sound far-fetched, but there are great examples that we can think of. Job in the Old Testament, he did nothing wrong, but God permitted Satan to afflict him. If you know the story of Job, his body's covered in sores. He's literally lost everything. He puts on sackcloth. He sits in ashes. But what does he do when his wife says, curse God and die? Job beats his breast and says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Meaning if things be good, I glorify God. If things be bad, I glorify God. My personal circumstances mean nothing when it comes to God's rightful place in my life. We think of Saint Paul. He talked about the thorn in the flesh, the messenger from Satan, sent to torment him to keep him from becoming proud. One out of the modern world, Saint Padre Pio, one of my favorites. Padre Pio, if you know his story, was always attacked by the devil. He even called the devil Old Bluebeard. And one night he writes that when he was trying to sleep, he heard a lot of noise in his room, it woke him up. He rolled over and looked in the corner and said to the devil, it's only you Old Bluebeard. I thought it was somebody important. And then he rolled over and went back to sleep. How many of us, if we thought the devil was in our room, could we just roll over and go back to sleep? Most of us would be clutching those rosary beads so tightly and invoking the intercession of our Blessed Mother. Now, any priest should be able to address cases of demonic infestation by praying in the location, demonic vexation and obsession by praying with the person. Cases that deal with demonic possession should be referred to the local bishop or the priest authorized to investigate these situations. Whenever I'm trying to determine whether or not someone is truly being afflicted by the devil or one of his demons, the church says that there are four things that I should look for. The ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual, exhibiting superhuman strength beyond the normal capacity of the individual, having elevated perception, knowledge about things that that person, as an individual, would not otherwise know. And number four, the one that's familiar to all of us, an aversion to anything of a sacred nature, such as being blessed with holy water, being shown a crucifix, having scripture read in front of them, having hands laid on their head, a prayer being said, or even placing relics on the body as prayer is also being done. It's also possible to know that an evil spirit is present when symptoms of the demonic are observed. These include bodily contortions. In Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 26, we are told the evil shook the man violently. There can be a change in the voice. Mark 5, 5, he would cry out, and cut himself with stones. Whenever a demon manifests, the voice always gets much deeper because the demon wants to instill fear and to give the impression that it is in charge. Think of a barking dog, if you will, again, meant to instill fear. There can be a change in the physical appearance, such as foaming at the mouth, the eyes rolled in the back of the head, unpleasant odors, the worst horrible stench that you can ever imagine. So think of the, I don't know, the dead armadillo along the side of the road in August. It's 95 degrees outside. What does that smell like? It's been there for about two weeks now. Doesn't smell good, does it? Multiply that by at least 100 and you're getting closer to the stench when demons manifest. There can be a change in the temperature of the room whereby it gets much colder laughter, uncontrollable hysteria, hissing and a resemblance the movement of a snake. There can even be levitation. All of these things, again, are meant to instill fear, because the devil wants everyone who's witnessing the manifestations to focus on what he is doing rather than what God is doing. You know, the very first exorcism I witnessed in Rome, I guess you always remember the first one, right? So I'm talking to this little Italian lady and her husband. I say I learned enough Italian to order pizza for lunch when I was there, but she's telling me why she's possessed. And I'm listening to the story and thinking, this doesn't seem so bad after all. And Father Carmine walks into the room and he puts a roll of paper towels on the table and he walks back out of the room. He comes back in again. He ties a plastic grocery bag onto the wall radiator. He walks back out again, and I'm watching him and looking at this lady and her husband. He comes back in again with his purple stole on. He has the the rite of exorcism in his hand. He reaches over, takes holy water, blesses this lady. As soon as the drops of water hit her head, her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She began to foam at the mouth. She began to growl and snarl and throw out all kinds of obscenities and blasphemies towards Father Carmenet and I'm looking at this thinking, what in the world has my bishop gotten me into? (laughs) Father Carmine, what did he do? He reached over, tore off a paper towel, wiped the person's mouth off, threw it in the plastic bag, and just continued to pray. Another exorcism, I witnessed levitation. So when the demon manifested, it started gleaming and glaring at me, got this hideous look on its face, And then I look over and the person is rising out of the chair and the demon is glaring at me. Father Carmini has his right and he's praying and he looks over and sees the levitation. He continues to pray. He looks over again. He continues to pray. Then he takes his hand, puts it on the person's head and pushes them back down into the chair. (laughs) Does not even flinch for a moment. It was a very teachable moment because Father Carmine was saying to me, don't focus on what the devil is doing and his parlor tricks. Look at what God wants to do in the life of this person. Now, all of these can be indications of demonic possession, but before proceeding with the official rite of the church, there is an American protocol that we follow. In many ways, I'm trained to be a skeptic, I should be the last person to believe that someone is truly possessed. I need to reach moral certitude, meaning beyond a doubt the person in front of me is truly dealing with the extraordinary activity of the devil. So step one of the protocol is for the person to have some type of psychiatric evaluation. Step two would be to have a medical examination by a qualified doctor. I always believe that if the church were too quickly to label someone as being possessed and that label prevents the person from getting the true help that they need from the mental health professionals or from the medical field, then the church would ultimately be doing greater harm than good. We have to give people the true help they need as opposed to the help that they think they need. Unfortunately, many people who come to me have already self-diagnosed. They believe that they are possessed and they need an exorcism. I even had a man in Virginia one time that I was working with, and he was convinced that he was possessed. And after referring to him to a psychiatrist in his area, the determination was that he was dealing with a mental health issue. I shared that with him. He was convinced that it was demonic he found a professional exorcist. So there are people that are not tied to faith who do dabble in exorcisms. This man was told by this professional exorcist that he was possessed by five demons, and it would cost $1,500 each to to cast them out. People take advantage of people who are broken and hurt, but the church, again, does not do that. It's a ministry of charity. And even with that said, I'll tell you a joke so that you wake up now. So remember, exorcisms are free, but the joke amongst exorcisms are, or exorcists are, the danger is if you don't pay your exorcist, you might get repossessed. <laughs> That's your joke to keep you awake. Now, in the American Protocol, I'm not asking the psychiatrist or the medical doctor, is this person possessed? No, I myself will make that determination, but I want the best possible information that I can have before I decide whether or not it is a case of true demonic possession. Step three of the protocol would be to take a life history of the person. The Vatican has put out an intake questionnaire, so if it's demonic, I want to know what was the entry point for the demonic into this person's life. And going through this intake questionnaire gives me an idea of what that opening may have been. So doing the right of the church, that entry point can be closed. Step four, I look for those four signs of demonic possession. Again, the ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual, superhuman strength elevated perception and an aversion to anything of a sacred nature. The next step would be to normalize the spiritual life of the person. It's not enough to cast the demon out. God has to be invited in. We think of the account in chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel where it says that once the demon has been cast out, it goes and wanders through the arid wasteland and coming back and finding the house swept clean It goes and finds seven other demons worse than itself, and they come and take up residence in the person. So again, being swept clean means the demon's gone, but God has not been invited in. And I have seen a growing trend in the 17 years that I've done this ministry because faith is in decline. There are a lot of people today who now view the exorcist as the magician. They believe that I have powers and abilities and I can make the evil go away. If people are relying on me, we are all in trouble. But if people are relying on the power and the authority and the name of Jesus Christ that is being acted out through the ministry of the church, that is the right attitude to have. Even Father Carmine told me before I left Rome, he he said the very last piece of advice I give you is this, If you're ever doing an exorcism and you think for even a brief moment, wow, look at what I'm doing, he said you've just walked on unholy ground. Because again, it's not what you're doing, it's what Christ himself is doing. In an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander, he is the main actor. The next step would be to put the entire case together, and then to present it to the bishop who would make the final decision on whether or not an exorcism should be performed. So again, it is a very methodical process. There is no such thing as an emergency exorcism. The demonic connection did not happen overnight, and the church wants to move in a very methodical way so as to do good rather than causing greater harm. Now, the devil's goal is to present morally bad objects at an angle to a person's mind designed to make that evil be perceived as a certain good. So he wants to objectify evil, and he wishes to keep humanity in a constant state of opposition to God. The devil's cleverest ruse, according to the famous remark by the 19th century French poet Charles Pierre Baudelaire is to convince us that he does not exist. The devil prefers to work in the shadows, but in an exorcism we can say the church is dragging him out into the light, into the light of Jesus Christ, where he will be conquered. You've ever been in a room that's filled with bugs and you turn a light on? where did the roaches do? They scurry through every crack and crevice because they don't want to be in the light. It's the same way with Satan and his demons. They do not want to be in the light of Christ, but in the rite of exorcism, that is exactly what is done. They are dragged into the light of Christ where the power of Christ will conquer and defeat them. Now, delivering people from evil spirits along with forgiving sins and healing the sick, is an essential part of the gospel. When we no longer accept the reality of evil, we no longer acknowledge the need for a savior. Savior. There are many people today who would laugh at the topic of demon possession and the practice of exorcism. These people might say, well, haven't we grown in our understanding of mental health and moved away from this? But the church has always consistently taught that evil is personified in what we call the devil and the other fallen angels. Even uh, Pope Paul, back in 1972, said that it was against the official teaching of the church to somehow not believe in a personified evil. And when he spoke about that, it kind of caused people to kind of raise their heads and pay attention because there are many people who believe that after the Second Vatican Council, the Church no longer believed in a personified evil. And yet it is true that the Second Vatican Council has spoken more about the reality of the devil in its documents than in any other ecumenical council in the more than 2,000 year history of the Church. So the scriptural worldview is that there has been a fall and that the human race is broken and wounded. Lucifer was the most brilliant of all the created beings in heaven. Prior to his rebellion, Lucifer is described in the following terms in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, full of beauty. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless, in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So Lucifer, like all angels, was created for the purpose of glorifying God. However, instead of serving God and praising God forever, Lucifer wanted to rule in heaven and be in place of God. We can say that he wanted supreme authority. In Isaiah 14 in the Old Testament, in reference to Lucifer, it says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And what's the key word we hear in all of that? The word I, which is why we say the sin of Lucifer was the sin of pride. It's interesting, when I was in Rome, I asked Father Carmine, what's the most difficult case of demonic possession that you have ever dealt with? And he told me there was someone who was possessed, and he finally asked the demon, commanded it to say its name, and the demon refused, and then Father Carmine said, is your name Lucifer? So he had some inkling in dealing with this person, that this was the devil himself. And he said the devil responded by saying this, I used to be known by that name, but no longer. To acknowledge the name Lucifer, which means light bearer, would be to acknowledge the giver of the name, namely God. And because Lucifer rejected God, the demon said that it was no longer known by that name. Now the word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, It means adversary, slanderer, opposer. The word Satan comes from Hebrew and means accuser. Sometime between the dawn of creation and the intrusion of Satan into the Garden of Eden, Lucifer, along with one-third of the angels, fell. It was St. Augustine who asked the question, When were the angels created and when did their judgment take place? St. Augustine says that proceeding very cautiously, we can see the creation of the angelic world in the very first words of the book of Genesis, when God says, let there be light, because light is a reference to intellectual creatures. But right after God said, let there be light, the light was divided into day and darkness. When God said, let there be light, it was good. But when light is divided, it does not say that it was good. And Saint Augustine says that in those words, we can see the creation of the angelic world and then the fall of one third of the angels that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now until the final judgment on Satan and his demons, the Bible presents us with very specific instructions on how to get victory over the devil. We are told, do not give the devil a foothold, Ephesians 4:27. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking him whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5:8. 8. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4, 7. The sad reality is that far too many people today are giving the devil a foothold. They're not being sober and vigilant in their faith, and they're certainly not resisting him. I always say that if you're Catholic, if you're going to mass, if you're praying, if you're receiving the sacraments, if you are reading sacred scripture, the devil is already on the run. We don't have to do anything extraordinary to defeat the devil. All we have to do is to live out the ordinary aspects of our Christian faith. But when we do not live out the ordinary aspects of our faith is when we can get ourselves into trouble. Genuine cases of demonic possession are rare. Perhaps one out of every 5,000 people that I talk to. But it is real and they do happen. Most cases that I deal with are related to infestation, vexation, and obsession. The other good news is that possession is not contagious. People always say to me, well, Father, aren't you worried that the demon's gonna jump out of that person and jump into you? That makes for a great Hollywood movie, but again, that's not reality. The demons do not have that kind of power. One would have to invite the demon in. And again, if one is living out their faith, they are protecting and safeguarding themselves. Think of Psalm 91, I need not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Paul's letter to the Ephesians put on the whole armor of Christ. If we're doing these things, we are already protected from the evil one. When we're not doing those things, we get ourselves into trouble. So how do people create a connection with the demonic? When it comes to the extraordinary activity of the devil, I wanna share with you eight ways that I have witnessed over the last 17 years that seem to be the primary ways that people open up an entry point to the demonic. And these are not in any particular order. And I might even share some examples with you to get you to wake up again. <laughs> so number one ties to the occult. The word occult comes from the Latin word occultus, and it means hidden or secret. It focuses on knowledge of the paranormal. Its basic root is that people want a glimpse into the future. It's associated with things like palm reading, going to see a median or a psychic, the use of a Ouija board, playing with tarot cards, a pendulum, crystals, magic, horoscopes, witchcraft, and I'm even gonna mention knocking on wood. Anybody here ever knock on wood? You're brave, because I thought you would say, there is no way I'm answering that question now. Just because you've knocked on wood, I don't think you're possessed. But I use that as an example of how things of an occult nature can become so mainstream that we don't even think about what it is that we're doing. So the practice of knocking on wood. I love the insurance company that has that stop knocking on wood ad campaign. But it's a Druid practice. It's the belief that spirits live in the trees. And so one is knocking on the tree, if you will, asking the spirit who lives in the tree to come to their aid and grant their request. Now most of us, if we knock on wood, that's not the mindset that we have. But again, I use that as an example of how things of the occult can become mainstream in our society today. So practices of the the occult are condemned because they're a form of idolatry that violate the very first commandment. Where God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before me. When people turn to the occult, they're looking for a substitute for God in their life. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter eighteen, verses ten through twelve, you must never practice black magic, be a fortune teller, a witch, or a sorcerer, cast spells. Ask ghosts or spirits for help, or consult the dead. Whoever does these things is disgusting to the Lord. Leviticus 19.31 Do not defile yourselves by turning to medians or to those who consult the spirits of the dead. The Catholic Church would say, psychics and medians do not have the power that they claim to have. It's always the power of evil working in and through them. Either they've been duped by the evil to believe that it's actually them, or they know it's the evil working through them, and they are complicit with it because they like the attention, the notoriety, or the money that they are making. And oftentimes when people see a medium or a psychic, they go there out of a sense of curiosity. They hear a kernel of truth, which the devil will use to lure them in, and then that curiosity leads to a reliance and then that reliance will lead to a connection with the demonic, and then eventually the bottom is going to fall out, and the person will find themselves in a very difficult way. A few years ago I wrote an article for the Dossus Newspaper, the Archdiocese of Louisville, because in Bardstown, Kentucky, a very old basilica, Catholics were going to Mass on Sunday. After leaving Mass they would walk across the street, They would go into the psychic shop and have their palm read and have the tarot cards turned over. And they saw nothing wrong with that. They did not understand that that was inconsistent with our Catholic faith. A second entry point is the entertainment industry. Movies today, TV shows and literature and games and computer and IT gadgets have a great fascination with the devil. And children today are growing up in front of a screen that's leaving them in isolation and not in community. And the devil loves to attack people in isolation. We all heard the saying before, there is strength in numbers. That's why the church is important. The word church, ecclesia, community. We need to come together and recognize the positive role that we play in the lives of individuals. Again, at the beginning of my talk, I mentioned people who say that they don't need to go to church in order to be spiritual or talk to God. We need to have a relationship with Christ that is personal, but we also need a relationship that is communal. Other people can hold us accountable and make sure that we're truly living out an authentic Christian life. When we start to go it alone is when we get ourselves into trouble. Certain types of literature today are very catechetical in nature. They present the position of magic, being a witch or a wizard, as one of power and authority, and, evil, and even presents uh, evil as something good. When people always ask me about certain types of literature, and whether it's good or bad, I always say, can your child readily quote the Bible or the catechism of the Catholic Church as readily as they can quote these books on magic that they're reading? Again, if children know their faith well enough and if they're reading these books, they're going to be able to filter that through their faith. But if they don't know their faith, they're not going to be able to filter out what they're reading and see how, it, once again, it is inconsistent with our faith. A third entry point is being cursed, which is the opposite of a blessing. To bless something or someone is to commend them to God. To curse something or someone is to commend them to the devil or some evil spirit. Curses are only effective if we are weak in our faith. We cannot control what someone else does, but again, we can make sure that we are standing right in the eyes of God there was a couple in northern indiana that had a business they terminated an employee for being a bad employee after the person was ter- terminated she told them that she was a witch and she was going to curse them for terminating her employment she went through their business and put satanic symbols everywhere on the walls behind pictures under tables and chairs in files in the uh, of their clients even sacrificed animals When I went up to visit the location, there were burned animal parts in front of the building and behind the building. And, of course, the couple was terrified. But they were people who were not practicing their faith. And they're like, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, I will celebrate Mass for you and your business. We will bless it again. But the curses will only stop when you come to realize that they have no bearing on you whatsoever. Again, we cannot control what somebody else does, but we can make sure that we're living right in the eyes of God. A fourth entry point is being dedicated to a demon. Seems pretty far-fetched, doesn't it? One of the young ladies I met in Rome told me that her mother had dedicated her to Satan when she was born. Her mother did not want her, blamed God for giving her a child that she did not want, even attempted to abort her, but it was unsuccessful. So her mother blamed God for giving her a child that she did not want and said, I will get even with God by dedicating my daughter to Satan. For the first 12 years of her life, she underwent all kinds of satanic rituals and abuses. At the age of 12, she ran away. She ended up on the streets of Rome. In her later teens, she found her way to Father Carmine, who began praying the prayers of exorcism over her. She was one of the very first persons that I saw when I arrived at the church where the exorcisms were being performed that I participated in. Father Carmine was the pastor of St. Lawrence Parish outside the walls of Rome. I would walk down to the Fountain of Trevi every day if you have been to Rome, get on the bus right across from Burger King and then take the 15 minute bus ride to San Lorenzo. The church was here, there was a courtyard, and then the cluster of buildings over here where the exorcisms took place. This young lady, when I first walked up, there were about 50 people in the courtyard. Some had appointments, some did not. And she was manifesting right in the courtyard. And I'm looking at her manifesting demons. She eventually came in. Father Carmine prayed over her. The good news about this young lady is she went on to become a nun after the demons were cast out. She knew what it was like to live on the streets of Rome, to have no one, so she dedicated her life to Christ and then wanted to make a positive difference in the lives of other street children. What's great about that story is this. The devil thought he was doing something to destroy her life, but everything he was doing was actually guiding her to God. So again, every time the devil thinks he's doing something, that's going to advance his kingdom, ultimately, he always advances the kingdom of God. A fifth entry point, abuse, which creates emotional wounds that can cause a person to seek help from the wrong sources. As an exorcist, I hear horrific stories from people. This lady growing up in Mexico told me at the age of seven, her father began to rape her over a period of five years. At the age of 12, her father turned his attention to her younger sister. She was broken. She was torn up. She was shattered. She blamed God for allowing this to happen. She turned to curanderos and brujas, shamans and witches, who told her that they could help put the pieces of her life back together. But she only found her life shattered and broken more and more and more. She came to see me at the age of 50. So she was gone from the church for many, many years. But a friend brought her. She had gone to see this priest. This priest actually believed that she was manifesting in front of him. He was a newly ordained priest. He didn't know what to do. I agreed to meet with them. So she's, I'm sitting here. This young priest is here. The lady's on the other side of the table with a friend that came with her. She's telling me the story. She's sobbing. And then she looks at me and says, will you help me? And I looked at her and said, Jesus is going to help you. As soon as I said that, the demon manifested. Her eyeballs turned green. Her pupils became slanted like a serpent. The demon looked at me and goes, who's he? He has no power over us." This young priest fell to his knees. Mm -hmm. He started rattling off Hail Mary's like a machine gun. (laughs) This lady's friend literally jumped over the table in one leap to get away. I walked right over there and I put my hand on the head of this demon that's manifesting. The demon is cussing me out, throwing all kinds of obscenities. I reach in my pocket and I bring out holy water and I bless, and the drops of water hit the person and the demon began to shriek and scream and collapse to the floor. This was not the time to do the exorcism, so I scheduled to do it the following week. I always prepare myself, I celebrate mass, I go to confession, I spend time fasting, I pray, I determine the location of the exorcism, where it will be. Exorcisms never take place in an abandoned house on a dead-end street at midnight (laughs) during a thunderstorm. That's a great movie, but again, the devil does not get to choose where he will be defeated. The church herself will make that determination. And then I will also determine who else will be there. There is no such thing as exorcism tourism. There's nobody there out of a sense of curiosity. And I guarantee you, you don't want to be there because when a demon manifests, it sizes up everybody in the room. And once it determines who the weakest link is, that's the person the demon will try to physically attack and certainly verbally attack. So the following week, we're in a chapel at a parish in Indianapolis. This young, newly ordained priest came back. So he had the courage and conviction. The lady came with her friend, We begin the rite of exorcism. It begins by blessing the person with holy water, reminding ourselves of our baptism, by which we have become a new creation and have put on Christ. As soon as I blessed with the holy water, the demon manifested. There's the green eyes again, the slanted pupils. The demon looked at me and laughed and goes, You can't get rid of us. We've been here too long. You're not strong enough. And then began to laugh. And then I did the litany of the saints. I read one or more of the Psalms. I read scripture passages of Jesus performing exorcisms, uh, the prologue of John's gospel, the word became flesh. So all of these things are meant to torment the demons. All the components of the rite of exorcism, what the church is doing, is taking the aspects of our faith, which the demons have rejected, and literally throwing them into the demon's face. The insufflation prayer turned out to be key. So I even showed the crucifix, again reminding the demon, you've been defeated by the power of Christ on the cross, you will be defeated again, why do you resist? The insufflation prayer, breathing on of the face of the person, invoking the Holy Spirit. It recalls when Jesus breathed on the face uh, faces of his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain i simply went like that the demon is sitting in the chair the chair flies back 10 feet like it was hit with a strong wind it the chair hit the wall the demon screams and shrieks comes flying out of the chair lands on the floor myself and the other priests go over and lift the lady up and she's beaming as bright as the sun it's one of the ways that i've noticed when demons have been truly cast out, is that the person begins to glow. Think of a halo around the painting of a saint. It's not their glow, they're radiating the glory of God. Because I, in Rome, I learned that sometimes demons will give the false impression that they have been cast out. One of the ones that Father Carminé was doing, the demon gave the impression that it was gone. It even sounded like the voice of the man, the demon's like, thank you so much, Father, for praying today. I feel so much better. I don't want to take up any more of your time. You can stop (laughs) praying now. And then when Father Carminé blessed the person again with holy water, the demon's like, I told you you could stop praying now. (laughs) But again, what I've noticed is that when there is a glow, the glow of God, that is a clear indication the demon has been cast out. Another entry point is a life of habitual sin. We've lost a sense of sin in our world. We are all sinners, we all do wrong, but what's the number one thing we are called to do? Repent, not to walk away from God and to justify our sinfulness, but to simply repent, to say to God, I'm sorry. I always like to reflect for a moment when Adam and Eve had sinned, when God said to Adam, what have you done? Rather than saying, that woman you put me here made me do it. Eve, what have you done? The serpent made me do it. No one's taken any responsibility. But I always like to imagine what would have happened if Adam had said, I've sinned and I'm sorry. Again, taking ownership of what we do is a way that we can defeat the devil. Another entry point is inviting a demon in. It seems rather strange. There was a, a young lady that I worked with who told me that she was praying outside of an abortion clinic in North Dakota. She believed that someone going in was acting as if they were possessed. So she ran up to the individual and said, what's ever in you, I freely invite to come in to me. A misguided notion of charity. She said no sooner did the words come out of her mouth, she felt something come over her. Happened when she was 19. For the next 10 to 12 years, she exhibited demonic manifestations. All those examples that I shared with you. She began working with another priest. She moved to the state of Indiana with her husband. I began to work with her. Seven demons identified themselves. Six of the demons identified were six of these seven deadly sins. One of the demons told me its name was Leviathan, the demon mentioned in the Bible, the great sea monster and the demon told me that it was not going anywhere because it had been invited in, and therefore it was making a claim on the life of this lady. And we can say that in an exorcism, the demon is commanded to return that which it has stolen, namely a person created in the image and likeness of God. I worked with this lady for a year. Those six demons, the weakest ones, were the first to go. Leviathan was being very obstinate, the last day when the demon was cast out, I'm in southern Indiana right across the river, Ohio River from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm in a convent chapel. That lady is there, her husband is there, I'm there. We're praying, I told the demon Leviathan, I command you to say, Hail Mary, full of grace, and to come out immediately. The demon looked at me and laughed and goes, Grace of full, scrambled the words, but would not say the name of our blessed mother. She is a powerful ally for anyone who's up against the forces of evil. At that moment, a bell rings. 400 school children are now pouring out onto a parking lot just outside the window where the exorcism is taking place. The demon begins to scream and laugh and goes, Stop praying! If you stop praying, I will stop screaming. But if you keep praying, I'm going to keep screaming. People are going to hear my screams. Come in here and see what you're doing. And then you're going to have to stop anyway. And then I looked at the demon and said, I command you to obey me in all things, although an unworthy minister of Christ, to say the words in the order that I told you to say them and to get out immediately. The demon looked at me, had been speaking in this very deep and authoritative voice. And in a child's voice, the demon said, Hail Mary, full of grace. And then there was a shriek and there's the glow the glow again, the demon had been cast out. If you've heard me share that story before, people always say, well, what'd you do after that? You worked with him for a year. Did you celebrate mass? Did you do a holy hour? What did you do? And I said, I went to Dairy Queen. <laughs> it's a true story. I was two hours away from my parish. I was hot and sweaty after that exorcism. And I thought, I'll have a chocolate shake on the way home. <laughs> I can now break the fast. I walked into Dairy Queen, it was packed, about five people deep at the counter, and I thought, if these people knew where I just came from, (laughs) I would be like Moses parting the Red Sea. The last entry point that I will mention is broken relationships. We all deal with brokenness in our lives, but how we deal with them does seem to matter. Do we give in to anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge and all those other ugly things? Things that the demonic feeds on. If we want the devil out of our lives, we have to starve him out. And when we deal with brokenness, we need to deal with it in a healthy manner. The best example of how brokenness led to demonic possession comes right out of the Bible itself. Chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel, the story of the Gerasene demoniac. You know the story. The man's possessed by legion, he's living in the tombs, fetters won't even hold him. There's the superhuman strength. Jesus is coming along, the demons shout, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus commands them to come out, he rebukes them, they ask to be sent into the swine, they go into the swine, they race over the hillside and they drown in the lake. Most people usually stop reading the passage at that point, but I would suggest the most significant part of that gospel account, happens next. The man who was possessed by legion wants to follow Jesus. But what does Jesus say to him? No. How often does Jesus tell someone, don't follow me? So this is a very teachable moment. Jesus says, no, go home to your family. Jesus takes a man who is living amongst the dead in the tombs, and now places him back amongst the living. Again, the importance of community, the importance of family. Think of the prodigal son when he returns home, and he says to his father, I sinned against heaven and I sinned against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. The father doesn't say, yeah, you're right. Look at all the horrible things you did. No, none of that matters. All that matters is where that young man is at that moment, namely in the presence of his father, being uh, sorrowful for what he's done. And it should be the same with each and every one of us. So is there a way out of all this craziness? And the answer is absolutely. Demons have power. They can only be defeated by power. The power that defeats them is the power of God. And the ministry of exorcism is one of the ways that we call upon the power of God. And in just in two minutes, then I'm going to let you ask questions. I want to give a brief explanation of the ordinary activity of the devil. This is how the devil tries to trip all of us up in our daily lives. And it's it's a four-stage plan of attack. And I use the words that begin with the letter D. It begins with deception, which leads to division, which leads to diversion, which leads to discouragement, deception. The devil wants us to buy into his lies. And once we buy into the lies of the devil without repenting, we find ourselves divided or broken. You know, the goal of the Christian person is to put our lives together and to give them back to God. The devil believes that if our lives are nothing but a jumbled bunch of bits and broken pieces, then we will have nothing to give. Deception leads to division, we are broken, and rather than repenting, we look for a substitute for God. There's the diversion. Think of the Israelites on a journey to the promised land, who moved away from the worship of the one true God to the worship of a golden calf. They wanted to worship something of their own creation rather than the uncreated God. So deception, division, diversion, and without God in our lives, it leads to discouragement, St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in you. The human person has the innate desire for God, and when we do not foster that relationship with God, we can find ourselves discouraged. And when people arrive at discouragement, it's a crossroads. One pathway will lead us to death, always spiritual, sometimes physical. Think of the growing trend of suicide in our society today but because we are a people of faith and a people of hope, the other pathway leads to discipleship. We might call it the new evangelization that St. John Paul II talked about, the need to reawaken faith in our lives once again. It's that ringing of the church bells again on Sunday mornings that's meant to remind us to wake up with Christ and the church. So if you think you're dealing with demonic activity, extraordinary or ordinary, go to Mass, receive communion, go to confession, spend time in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament, incorporate Marian devotions into your daily routine, especially pray in the Rosary, use scripture for prayer and reflection, especially the prologue of John's Gospel, include other devotions, the Divine Mercy, prayers to patron saints, highlight the chaplet of St. Michael the Archangel, Use sacramentals such as holy water, blessed salt, blessed objects, and sacred images. All of us need to realize that we need to fear God and not the devil. When confronted decisively and definitively, the devil is weak and a coward. He will only attack when met with weakness. When he is met with strength, he will flee. And it's always important to know that the devil will attack us in what he perceives to be Our weakest point. But remember the words in scripture, when I am weak, then I am strong. If the devil helps you identify a weakness in your spiritual life, use that against him, because now you know the area of your life that you need to shore up spiritually so that you can truly be the person that God wants you to be. With that said, questions. It was Dr. Kenneth McCall. Mm-hmm.
0: So he was recommended um, the priestess in charge of the National Shrine of Biomarcy. And in the book, he talks about exorcisms, and he was a very well known psychiatrist that the United States hired because when the Bermuda Triangle was manifesting, the pains would go down. He researched it and found out that it a mass murder site. And they had the Archbishop come out with the Coast Guard. They did exorcism, and that's why the community final hasn't had incidents since 1973 like, like, or what have you. But he goes into detail and he says that deliverance is not just exorcisms, that he is able to cure people of many illnesses by them just going to confession and receiving the Eucharist mm-hmm. and getting to look at that. And he said all disorders are usually rooted
1: in some way like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where, when I made the comment that it's the ordinary aspects of our faith that will keep evil at bay. So going to confession, going to communion, even Father Gabriel Amorth, again the former chief exorcist in Rome, said that a good confession is better than an exorcism. So relying on the sacramental grace of confession itself. So yeah, they're very powerful and efficacious. I think oftentimes people think that we have to do something extraordinary to defeat the devil, but I can't say it enough that it's the ordinary aspects of our faith. You know, I jokingly say, if somebody comes to me and they say, Father, I'm dealing with the demonic, what should I do? And I say, go to confession, go to communion. And they look at me like, well, what do you really want me to do? <laughs> and I jokingly say that if I told them, you need to go out the next full moon at midnight and howl at the moon and hop on one leg and swing a dead cat around your head, they would look at me and go, where do I get the cat? (laughs) People are always ready and willing to do the extraordinary, but again, the ordinary things. Go to confession, go to mass, pray. That's going to keep the devil at bay. Why are priests?
0: And torture things, drive off of disorientation, sexuality, and let them know that why I'm doing these exorcisms and delivering these places these places are absolute
1: You can't get more divine than where you're at. It And that's the I think that's the deception of the lies of the devil. It's attacking the human person because the human person is created in the image and likeness of God. The human person is God's greatest creation. If you remember the story of creation, God created everything by simply saying, let let there be, let there be. But the human person was very deliberate. God formed out of the, the clay of the earth. So the human person is very unique. Demons believe that by possessing a human person, they're distorting the image of God. And you're right. Abortion clinics have been distorting the image of God for many years. You talked about your 42 years. That's a wonderful ministry that you do. I do know priests that pray in front of abortion clinics. I was the pro-life director of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis back in the 1990s, prayed in front of many abortion clinics in Indianapolis, saw many of them shut down. Uh, Can priests do more? Absolutely. And that would be the exorcism prayer you're referencing would be dealing with infestation with a location. And I think the truth is that there may not be priests who realize that they have the authority to do that. Oftentimes, when people hear the word exorcism, it conjures up all kinds of images, but it is true, and I had this opportunity to talk with a group of priests earlier today. If priests will take their priesthood seriously, so will the devil. But if priests do not take their priesthood seriously, then neither will the devil. And we had the discussion, too, that the danger of priesthood today is that priesthood can be viewed as an occupation rather than a vocation vocation meaning a calling from God. We do what we do because God has called us to do it. So and it was even Pope Francis back in 2013 who talked about the importance of priests seeing priesthood as unction and not function, recognizing that we are called to anoint people with the gladness and the goodness of Jesus Christ and not just to be about managers of parishes. So you're right. There are priests to do that. Can we step up and do more? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, I want to ask, personally, out of all the films you may have seen about Exorcism, which one would you, say, would you say, personally, is the closest to it, given what they use portray?
1: The Exorcism of Emily Rose is probably the most authentic of the well-known movies out there that have to do with demonic possession. First thing. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, we followed you on YouTube uh <laughs> several of your talks
0: uh and uh, enjoyed the ice cream <laughs> with my limited knowledge of uh, the right of exorcism of the church uh a couple of different sources uh and read that uh,
1: That question always comes up. I always like to say that when we ask the question, the devil probably likes the fact that we're asking that question because it shows some disagreement within the church, which he would like. To me, the most important thing is, is it the prayer of the church? Whether it's in English or Latin, as long as the, the church has approved it, that's the most important thing. I will tell you that most exorcists will say that the older rite of exorcism the way the prayers were put together in the structure seems to be richer and deeper as opposed to the prayers in the new rite. Pope Benedict gave permission for any stably exorcist to use any of the rites. So the old rite or the new rite can use any of them. There is now some question with Pope Francis' recent Motu on the use of Latin, whether or not the old rite can even be used anymore. So there's been the dubia presented, and now we're trying to get clarification on that. But as of right now, uh, it may be that the old rite is no longer permitted to be used. Can demons
0: and angels read our minds?
1: Only God himself can read our minds. So the devil, demons do not know what we're thinking, but they can use deductive reasoning. They can watch us, and they can observe us. And they can deduce what we might be thinking or how we might act. Think of last Sunday's gospel reading, Jesus being tempted in the desert. You know, he fasted for 40 days. The devil shows up. The devil obviously has been watching him. At this point, the devil doesn't know who he is. He has a good idea. If you are the son of God, command the stone to turn to bread. He knows human nature. If you hadn't eaten in 40 days, you might be hungry. So prove to me that you're the Messiah, the promised one by commanding the stone to turn to bread. So, no. Only God knows the inner thoughts of the human person. Uh, question. Yes? Um, so,
0: if they give our minds, then how much does it work with like
1: intrusive thoughts from the devil and mental attacks? Because the demons can play on a person's memory and imagination. They can watch you. You can. They can observe you. They know when you're sinning and giving in to temptation, and then they will use that against you to constantly give those temptations to turn away from God.
0: Have you ever been afraid during an
1: exorcism? I've never been afraid. Been startled a few times. The first exorcism I did, when uh, I started praying, the uh, the demon lunged at me like a wild dog, and I think I jumped back. You know, five feet in one step, your heart's going, "Uh," but continue to pray. (laughs) Confidence comes over time, though, so now it um, doesn't—it doesn't faze me. There might be a little sweat. Thank you. Demons don't want to be cast out. They they kind of want to stay where they are. Then why don't they hide themselves whenever they're recommended to do psychiatric evaluations or mental evaluations? They would prefer to do that, but the prayers of the church antagonize them, and they're so egotistical that they can't keep remaining in secret, if you will. They just become so infuriated that they lash out. That goes back to what I said, that the church in the right takes what the the demons have rejected and throws them into their face. So the church keeps repeating these prayers and things, and then to the point where the demons just, ah, they can't remain hidden, because that's what they would prefer. And there are some people, I think, that, you know, maybe they are dealing with the demonic, but maybe they have been diagnosed as having a mental illness, I know the former exorcist of Indianapolis, Monsignor John Ryan. Right across the street from his parish was the old Central State Mental Hospital. And he used to share with me that when he would go and visit some of the residents, when he would walk in the main entrance, some of the residents would curse and spit at him. They would manifest. And then he would make the rounds and distribute communion. He said that when he left, these same people would be, Have a good day, Father. Thanks for coming. Good to see you again. See you next week. And he said the demons would not manifest because the Eucharist wasn't there to antagonize them. So it is the sense of the sacred that antagonizes the demons because God is what they rejected, the sacred, if you will. And so when they're confronted with the sacred, it causes them to lash out. Hi, Father. It's uh, great to see you a hello All right.
0: your talk because I think that you've probably been the best exorcist that I've heard speak about this that didn't instill fear and that really truly just spoke about the power of the Father um, which we're grateful for, thank you uh, but I wanted to ask specifically about when living in Haiti we saw a lot of oppressions, we saw some possessions and those were taken to, to the exorcist priest in
1: Haiti we
0: saw many manifestations um, and had to do deliverance ministry with the my question really comes
1: to how come we don't see that as much in America than we do in America I saw in, 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 in. I think because in America we try to, to hide it, we, want, we don't want it to be in the public because it instills fear I think in many parts of the western world we believe that we're not re- as readily to believe in spiritual realities and so maybe people are just automatically presumed to be mentally ill, whereas countries like Haiti and other parts of the world, they readily accept the possibility of a spiritual explanation for what the person is dealing with. But I think there's there's a lot of manifestations that take place in the United States, but we just don't readily see them as much. Good evening, thank, but, thank
0: you for your ministry. Um, the question I have is from your perspective as an exorcist
1: from a spiritual perspective, is there a difference between someone
0: who has been declared criminally insane by the law or a psychiatry versus someone who is either possessed or obsessed,
1: and if there is a difference, how do you tell? Yeah, that's a very good question because not all evil. We can't always say the devil made me do it. That's that's a, that could be an excuse or a cop out. Again, the devil can propose something, but he can't impose. So the devil can offer a temptation. He wants us to give into the temptation using our free will. And then he's going to be the accuser, the one who's going to accuse us before God. Ah, look, look what they did. They're not being faithful. So again, it could be people that are criminally ill. You know, the question would be, are they under some type of demonic influence? And I think that would just have to be explored on an individual case. There is something known as uh, perfect possession That's where somebody unites their will completely with the will of a demon and they become synonymous. I mean, the goal of the Christian life is to unite our will with the will of God. The good angels have done that. But there are people that want to unite their wills with the will of the devil. I've had two people that I've dealt with over the years that both told me that Satan was their father and when they died, they wanted to spend hell and eternity with the devil and the demons that they befriended in this life. They had no desire to be in heaven with God. They didn't want that. They were rejecting that and just wanted to be in hell. That's that's crazy talk. Someone would say that, you think, it must be criminally insane. But uh, I think it would just require the psychiatrist and the priest working together trying to decide what exactly is going on and what's the best help this person can receive.
0: This is around. In a person um, possessing them or impressing them, does that mean that they're nowhere else, you know, on earth and in heaven? Like it's like confusing over the station in this one person, only when they're manifesting and the whole time. Do they switch back and forth between hell and earth? And I don't know.
1: You can see right now. Yeah, so how do angelic creatures move? The good and the bad. They move by thought. They just think it and they're there. So they don't have to catch a plane or a train or anything like that. And when it comes to demonic possession, the best way to understand it is this. So it'll be heady for a moment, but spirits are not contained by space. They contain the space. They're non corporeal. They don't have matter and form. So this, we're in this church, this church is containing us. We're contained in this space for a demon to be here, it would contain the space. So when a person is possessed, we think we would say the, the person is contained by the demon. Probably a bad analogy, but think of somebody that's kind of now inside of a bubble. They're enwrapped inside of that. The demon is containing them, and then the da- demon is then able to control their, their body, their functions, their mouth, their eyes and whatnot. So in an exorcism, Really, what's taking place is that the demon that's containing the person is forced to let go of that containment. We could say it's being pushed out. But again, it's not just that, God, that the demon is pushed out. God's being brought in. That's the importance of the insufflation or the breathing on prayer. It's invoking the spirit of God. I don't know if that answered your question, but it'll give you something else to think about anyway. <laughs> All right. We're going to offer a prayer. So, thank you for your time and attention. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. O God, creator and savior of all flesh, who in mercy have rescued all of your beloved children, keep us in your providence and safeguard us in the freedom your Son has given to all of us. Grant, O Lord, that the spirit of iniquity may no longer have power over us. At your command, let the goodness and peace of the Holy Spirit be upon all of us, so that we may fear nothing from the evil one, because the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Go.